0: Welcome to another episode of Upstate Anecdotes. I'm one of your hosts, Caroline Pruitt, here with another story from the Carolina Upstate. This Christmas, I went to my grandparents' house in Seneca, South Carolina, and I talked to my grandfather, Dr. Joseph James, about his chestnut tree orchards. For as long as I can remember, they were always the destination of any walk, run, or hike around the farm, lovingly called Chestnut Returns. When I was younger, I used to tell my friends at school that my grandfather was saved the long-lost chestnut trees. And I guess that was never really an exaggeration. But I never understood exactly what he did on the farm. So I asked him. Here's our conversation about his life's work, bringing back the American chestnut tree. To preserve and protect the outdoors he grew up with, here is that story.
1: I was born in Greenwood Memorial Hospital. Downtown Greenville,
0: Joe James always loved plants, but he first became interested in the chestnut tree when he was eight years old on a hike with his father.
1: Oh uh, kind of caught my eye when I was a little kid. My father took me on his trips as a furniture salesman through North Carolina mountains a lot of times, and we were parked up at an overlook one day looking out at the mountains and there were a bunch of dead trees or snags you'd see it uh, spaced out across the mountain. And I asked him, what, what happened to those big trees? Why did they die? And he said, oh, that's probably chestnut trees. And they died of the blight. And I said, the blight? What was that? So he told me, and you know, I asked a million questions. And he answered them and uh, got me interested. I said, well, somebody really needs to do something about that. Well, I was eight years old then, and I didn't think about it again until I was, was uh, basically moved back to South Carolina.
0: In the meantime, Joe James went to Greenville High School, and later attended college at Wofford, then medical school at Bowman Gray, where he met his wife, Sandra James. Then he started his residency in orthopedic surgery in Charleston, and he began his practice.
1: We were, back back in those days, we were sort of in the golden era of medicine, and people that came out of medical school, by and large, not all of them, but most of them were highly dedicated to the the profession. And... uh, Mm-hmm. Now they've we made a lot we made money we were paid well for what we did but we didn't work didn't we didn't link that It wasn't a matter of making money. Money took care of itself all we did was take care of the people that were in front of us. It's not quite the same as it used to be. Yeah. It's better in some ways but it's not as good in others too so it's a
0: This sort of do the best you can for those around you attitude has followed him around his whole life on into retirement. Where he bought a farm and this whole chestnut thing really just fell in his lap
1: you know i could talk to him about seven hours on chestnuts you want me to <laughs> well really...
0: tell me a little bit about the farm you have
1: well it's a, a 250 acre farm uh, that was part of a uh, plantation that was granted to the verter uh, family uh, about 1820 it's when they executed it, it and was, it was granted to them probably in King Charles's reign, which was I think was in the 1600s. But uh, a lot of times families over in England didn't exercise their their uh, grants for property for generations until they finally decided to come here and sum up from parts of the family, and they claimed the, the grant and started to develop it, and it was a plantation of 4,000 acres and uh functioned for 1820 and stayed in the family until i bought it uh, in 1987. no i'm sorry 1983 when we first moved here mm-hmm. and uh then i i had found some chestnut trees in the mountains i found this particularly good american chestnut that was surviving uh upon why Bald, and uh i was out hunting chestnut trees at that time I couldn't believe I'd found this tree because it was so rare to find a big tree. This one was about two trunks, about 16 inches in, in diameter each. So it was a pretty big tree, mm-hmm. but it was so high on the mountain that the trees were all short so the chestnut could reach the sunlight, a full blast, full sun. And it uh, maintained itself for many, many years like that and didn't have any other tree to breed with so it didn't make nuts. But uh, once I found it reported it to the American Chestnut Foundation, they sent a bucket truck down here that uh, raised them up high into the treetop. And they took brought pollen from Meadowview, Virginia, and, and pollinated the flowers so they would produce nuts. And then it ended up, we had 650 or so seedlings from mm-hmm. that one year. And they couldn't use all those, so they had about, about 75 or so, or so left over. And uh, one of the geneticists dropped by my office here in Seneca unannounced and brought me a sack full of these things. And said, you want these? (laughs) So it was kind of sentimental since it was from the tree, I discovered it. So anyway, I planted them in a long line out here at the farm.
0: So he started breeding chestnut trees that would be as close to American as possible, in addition to being resistant to blight. And then in 2001, he recognized a problem.
1: They grew well for about a year, and then they started dying off after that. And by the third year, there weren't many left, and they would just suddenly turn brown and die. So I said, well, something's killing them. If it's drought, they die. If it's rainy, they die. If I fertilize them, they die. If I don't fertilize them, they die. Nothing I do seems to alter the course of these trees. Mm-hmm. So I started pulling them up and doing what we call in medicine an autopsy of the tree to try to figure, figure out, by looking at the whole thing, what, what it was that was killing them. It was pretty obvious to me, and with my medical background, it was pretty easy to see that the roots were necrotic and were being affected, and uh, so it was a root disease. That part I was pretty sure of. Uh-huh. So I called a patient of mine that happened to be the chairman of the department of forestry at Clemson, which was very convenient, and mm-hmm. she came out and uh, looked at, took one look at, it and said, "Gee, that looks like phytophthora to me." Phy <laughs> who? I said, how do you spell that? And I wrote it down on my palm here. I, went, I only didn't have a piece of paper. And uh, I went back and uh, hit the books and looked up all the research articles that had ever been written on Phytophthora. And I think there were 27, and that's, that's not very many, considering mm-hmm. it was discovered in 1926
0: At that point in the early 2000s, most of the attention in chestnut preservation was centered around blight resistance, and it was difficult to redirect attention to this new disease.
1: The blight was another disease that everybody talks about and knows about. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came over uh, when they planted Japanese chestnuts on the entrance to the New York uh, Botanical Gardens Mm -hmm. in New York City. And about the fourth year, they discovered the disease in the American Native American chestnuts in Central Park. Central Park was just full of American chestnuts. And the people in New York City would come out every fall and gather the nuts. So they were pictures of photographs of people gathering them up off the ground. Well, after about, you know, three or four years after they planted these trees from Japan, they noticed a blight on the chestnut tree. And it killed, it just started girdling the trees and killing them out. And uh, it sent out alarm bells and so that that was all the focus was on blight. So we were we were trying to breed the trees to be resistant to blight disease. And uh, in the meantime, we we here on this farm was kind of rediscovered phytophthora, and we had you know Jeff Steve Jeffers, the scientist at Clemson, was sent out by the by my friend who was the chairman, and uh, he was a plant pathologist, and he took samples mm-hmm. on the farm and samples of the roots of these trees. And, he uh, identified Phytophthora cinnamomi as a causative of organism. So at that point, it became obvious to me after all the reading idea that unless we got a tree that was genetically resistant to the root rot, then we were, we were not going to be able to bring the tree back, the American chestnut back to, to its full uh, range. Right. <clears throat> but, uh, so that made me think, well, if we've bred them with Chinese chestnuts, uh, Chinese just is another species that lives in, in Southeast Asia and China. It's resistant to Phytothracidomia because it's evolved over the last millions of years with the disease. And uh, So if we bred them with those to get blight resistance, which is also from, from Southeast Asia, then maybe we, by chance, picked up the resistance to root rot. And so I screened a bunch of nuts for that, 507 nuts, and 37 of them seemed to show some resistance. So that was a a real you know blow for the in the right direction, yeah and uh, so I said, well, we can just if we test all the families we've bred for you know, and all the many many different sources and breedings that we've done, some families may have more resistance than others and so I tested out uh, just about all the families we had, which was over hundred and twenty that I tested mm-hmm. and found a a wide disparity between the amount of resistance in the fa- in a given family so Forty-eight percent of them had basically no resistance, and fifty-two percent had a little bit of resistance, up to uh, a fair amount. None of them had great resistance, but the the best surviving family was, was had like twenty-eight percent survivors, which was humongous because most of them had 05 percent or less. You know, so, yeah. so anyway, that started me off on the breeding program and the and the screening program. We screened over thirty-five thousand uh, chestnut seedlings now. And uh, tested them in tubs, and we plant the nuts, grow them up in a sterile—not uh, sterile, but a clean uh, medium—and mm-hmm. doesn't have phytophthora in it. And then we inoculate them with phytophthora that we grow in the lab in, in Clemson, and right on directly on the roots. And then we test them. We pull them up and check the roots at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And the ones that have good resistance don't have much resistance, much disease in the root system. We I save them. Started planting them out. I have seven different orchards uh, on the farm now that are dedicated to those families that had some resistance, and now they're breeding with each other. Mm-hmm. And we're in the second generation now, so that the uh, trees wow. that we're planting, parents, mm-hmm. uh, both uh, their mother, their father, and their mother, are mm-hmm. survivors of Phytophthora cinnamomi. So that naturally, the offspring of that of that. Um, breeding is gonna have a higher chance of having resistance than just random. So it it actually goes up from about 2% survival to start with, which is very low when you go across the board of all the different families. Mm -hmm. And then the next generation, it goes up to about 40 to 60%. So that's a tremendous amount of improvement. So that's that's why these trees are highly prized that I have here because they're the most resistant that we have worldwide. And this year, and I'm going to quit talking about this in a minute, <laughs> this year we, uh, they've developed a tree in New York State that at the University of, what is it called, SUNY, uh, State University of New York, where they took a gene from wheat that produces a, 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 an enzyme that breaks down a, a chemical mm-hmm. that the fungus produces. And it's called oxalic acid. And it, it splits that oxalic acid. And it uh, really it it protects the tree almost completely from blight, you know. So it doesn't get blight. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So he said, "Well, that would have solved the problem long ago." But yeah. uh, but we've already discovered a new disease. It took me about four years of presenting data to the American Chestnut Foundation before they finally said, "Gee, you know, maybe you're on with something," you know. But <laughs> it took a long time to convince them. But mm-hmm. now it's uh it's sort of a split program. We've got program for phytophthora resistance and a program for blight resistance and this year we bred the trees from new york that have the blight resistance with my trees that have the phytophthora resistance Mm -hmm. in hopes that we can get a population started that has both blight and phytophthora resistance Mm -hmm. uh, to you know to the disease problem if we get that solved then we can start thinking about planting the trees back out in the woods but the ultimate goal is to get a tree that's Highly Americanized, which mostly American. It has a little bit of Chinese in it, mm-hmm. but mostly American. And uh can, can live in the woods, grow and reproduce, and become part of our ecosystem once more. Because chestnuts were the most important tree in the uh, in, in North America, and pr- practically in the world, because they produced so many nuts, and mm-hmm. p- eaten by people and livestock and every, wildlife and everything. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. No (laughs) pun intended.
0: (laughs) So did you know that you were going to have this work with the chestnut trees when you bought this farm?
1: No, I had no idea. Uh, In fact, I had retired. Uh, When I retired, I I really can't sit still. I I like to be doing things. Mm -hmm. And this just sort of fell in my lap out of the sky. I mean, I had no idea that I would be up against a new disease but uh it turned out we were we recognized it and i, I did a lot of talking at the meetings and writing papers and i had my magazine and, and uh, newspaper articles about it so eventually what really happened to tell you the truth is the maryland the state of maryland chapter uh-huh. they had a big die out in one of their orchards suddenly it just we had a rainy season and it it took out about all the trees suddenly mm-hmm. and they they finally, and you know, at the meeting, I said, "Well, send us some soil samples, and I'll tell you it's, it's phytophthora most likely," and it was phytophthora. And then they said, "Gee, you know, now they believe because they'd seen right. it for themselves." So you had to, you know, really get their get their nose into it, you know, just before they could finally realize that This is a real problem, and
0: mm-hmm. that took us
1: in a totally different direction at that point. It was up and going. So,
0: so what made you interested in chestnut hunting? like when you found that well, first chestnut tree?
1: Mostly diversity, because you know if you're gonna replace a species and get it back in the woods, you need a diverse population because every tree, well not every tree, but the trees have a lot of genes that are very rare and you don't find them in many trees. And they're not very important most of the time, but they were there for a reason because somewhere in the ancient past, some pathogen came along that attacked the species and that gene became forefront and became very important for the survival of the species. So you want all the genes you can possibly get into your population so that it'll be fortified against any occurrence that might happen in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to go out in the woods and look for these trees and and, and find them and use them, bring them into our breeding program and capture their genetics by using their pollen or by by inoculating the flowers the female flowers on the tree with the pollen from another source so you if you either way you're bringing in the the nuts that are produced are going to be half of that tree that you found you mm-hmm. whatever the mother tree is or the or if it's the father if you get pollen off of it and take it somewhere else the same thing it's going to be roughly 50 percent of those genes will then be brought into your gene pool and you'll expand it so very important to have a very broad you can't have a broad enough base on genetic diversity that's a very important thing so that that's the dilemma you know that's the hard part and that's going to require putting in high gear okay Mm -hmm. but the problem we've had thus far is getting a large enough number of trees to get big enough to produce enough nuts for that and we're just at the threshold we've only gone to the one intercross generation Right now, we don't even know how many genes there are for Phytophthora. The science hasn't advanced enough that we're kind of close to getting there, but we haven't quite found it yet. So it's probably somewhere around 8 to 12, at least, I'd say, genes for Phytophthora resistance that we have to try to get. If we don't have to get all, I mean, any one tree could probably do all right if it had 10 of them, 10 out of 12. But it's Mm -hmm. going to take more than just two or three. It's going to take a number.
0: So you've done a lot of work with chestnut trees and preserving the land. Why is this work so meaningful to you?
1: Well, I think we owe, we owe it to us as, as Christians and believers in God that we, we should be good stewards of the land and we should make leave the land better than we found it. Mm-hmm. And there are forces that are, that are really overwhelming the earth. And if they're unabated, and if they're left unabated, they will degrade it permanently, and and, uh, it it will cheapen life on earth, and it won't be to have the rich fullness that it has today. And anything we can do to preserve that is good. And uh, it's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I feel right that it's right, and Mm -hmm. uh, it gives me satisfaction to see that move forward.
0: Right. How are you going to ensure this work will go on?
1: well that's that's a good question because there's no guarantee that the public won't lose interest in it right now we've We've done fine with donations from not only from individuals but from large corporations even the federal government has given us uh, at one time a five five hundred thousand dollar grant uh, so right now the people in in the office and all plus the, the interested uh, uh, donors, uh, and private donors, have felt that it, the tree's worth it because of the quality of the, of the nut production and the importance it has on the ecology. And as long as we can hold that in the forefront I think we'll have a, a continual support system. Um, but we won't, we won't have results too. But the results have got to be something long-lasting. You can't just breed two trees or th- three trees and expect for the for the species to come bounding back, it has to have innumerable, and we don't, I mean, probably at least 200 individual wild American chestnuts have to be blended into the program in order to get the diversity genetically that will allow the species to recover permanently and not have some other disease come along. And when you've got a, a really narrow uh, diversity, then you don't have a lot of extra genes around that can be used to fight other diseases, and uh, so I think we I think we're going to do fine on that. I think it'll maintain support, mm-hmm. and uh, as we narrow our focus, then we'll perhaps require less money to do it too.
0: What would it look like to have the American chestnut tree fully back?
1: Well, it would change a lot of things. the uh, The plan is a real big. Uh, honey plant. It's uh, it attracts bees and all types of of in, insects to pollinate. They get the pollen off of the tree. Mostly, it's not so much for nectar, but it's really good as a pollen as a pollen producer for bees and insects. Um, then the birds, uh, of course, used to eat the nuts. The passenger pigeon probably existed primarily because of the chestnut tree. They flew up and down the eastern part of the United States, in tremendous flocks, and they would eat up the excess chestnuts, uh, which aren't there anymore, and neither is the pasture pigeon. And It's dying out very much, very well may have had something to do with the fact that the, the chestnut tree had, had died out also. And cattle, and uh, just people in general, hogs, all livestock eat uh, chestnuts, So. Wildlife eats chestnuts, so we'd probably have more um, an impact on, on more production of uh, wild animals that are able to eat nuts. And that I tell you, that pretty much covers the gamut: bears and coyotes and foxes probably eat them. I know foxes eat them too. All birds eat them. Rabbits, squirrels, and deer, especially deer, and human beings. So it's a it's a tremendous amount, tremendous source of food that would be injected into the ecosystem, and it would it would show some sort of an energizing of our ecosystem that we have today, which we think is normal. But it was much more diversified and plentiful back in the days before before blight. Did that answer that question?
0: Yeah, that was really good. Okay. I think that's. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much for interviewing with me. (laughs) I really appreciate it.
1: All right. Uh, You need to see some trees.
0: There's something about this bright future he describes. His faith in the importance of his work. His connection to the trees and his steady insistence that we all go on a walk and find them. When he describes this world full of American chestnut trees, it lights a little avenue of hope for mankind. I had never before considered what the chestnut tree could contribute to my life, because I had never experienced a life with the trees. This is the importance of listening to those around us, because if we don't take a second to remember what we've lost, Without my grandfather's memory of the trees, we might start doubting what we are all fighting for. The future ahead of us. This is Upstate Anecdotes, and I'll talk to you later.